0: and risen and received these words from the gospel according to Luke the 10th chapter beginning with the 25th verse just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus teacher he said what must I do to inherit eternal life he said to him what is written in the law What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. (laughs) Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. It is such a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Ben and I had a quick conferral. Um, There was supposed to be a moment in which he introduced me. I will tell you that is my least favorite part of any guest preaching opportunity I ever have. Um, I I won't pretend it's false humility. It's just sort of general embarrassment, right? So I'm a person who's done some stuff and I have a job. Um, And if you're more curious about that information, it's actually printed in your bulletin and I invite you to read it. I mean, you can find out some about me, um, but it truly is uh, my honor to be here, and I'm grateful that uh, Pastor Ben did not make me endure again listening to uh, my uh, uh, accomplishments or made-up accomplishments, like named. Um, I, you know, as uh, I appreciate, actually, the children's sermon in which we talk about Daniel the Tiger, because those of us of a certain age remember Daniel the Tiger from our time with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and as I shared sort of this passage and told someone, you know, this is going to be our sermon that we're talking about. Who is my neighbor? Immediately, one of my friends texted me and they're like, I really hope that you're going to change out of your robe into a cardigan and put on your sneakers for this conversation. And I said, you know, that is a great idea. Um, I have these particular sneakers that I wear uh, in uh, in my role at American University. Uh, that sort of are in university colors, because I've discovered that since I'm watching around, walking around campus so much, sneakers serve me much better. And it seemed almost appropriate, but uh, the amount of time added on top of the sermon seemed like a lot. Um, I extend to you as well the greetings of my wife and children who couldn't be with us this morning. Um, those of you who are familiar with summer activities in our area, it is swim season, um, and my uh, my. One of my children, who just made it on the swim team this year, uh, got to be on a relay this morning at Relay Carnival. And while I was preaching our first sermon, uh, my first time here in the first worship service, I saw my phone in the pew like light up, and I knew that that meant I got the result, um, which was very exciting. And so I know that everyone here is riveted. He tied for first, so so we're very excited. Yeah, absolutely. I got asked a lot of questions about why I was dressed up for a swim meet, and I assured him I wasn't staying. It is such an honor to stand in this pulpit. Foundry has stood in this nation's capital for more than 200 years, calling us as a nation and a society to, re- to realize our full and better selves. We together, we Methodists together, belong to a theological tradition that has the audacity to suggest that the world is not as God intends it to be. But more than that, we have the capacity to change it. We can make this world a gentler place. And because we hold these theological ideas of both agency and freedom together, we have a moral obligation and a Christian mission, witness, to work for that change in our lives and in our society. So from this great pulpit, prophetic voices of justice and compassion have called out through the years to move us to realize our full and gentler selves. And it makes me anxious thinking of all of those voices, guests and otherwise, that have spoken from this place. President Lincoln sat in his pews. Roosevelt as well. Churchill has been here. Most recently, William Barber. Was in this space, preaching from this place, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Who am I to stand here in that place? But more personally and significantly important for me right now is that you are the home congregation of the fully ordained Deacon T.C. Morrow. I wanted to be with you in June to celebrate the moment and, and this is going to sound like a refrain all of us have in our lives, I tested positive for COVID earlier that week and could not join you. So it is my honor to be here to celebrate that in this space from this part. And I can think of no finer examples of Christian discipleship than TC, and I'm grateful to call her a friend. So I stand here with some nervousness because of that. Where I serve, American University also emanated and emanates from the good work and diligence of this community that shared that dissatisfaction with the status quo, which is at the heart of AU's founding. The Methodists founded AU to change the world, to make it gentler for everyone. Not just Americans, everyone. In our first class were women and persons of color, including a black candidate for a PhD, in a time when this was still highly unusual. The first academic program of AU was the School of International Service. Not study, not study for the sake of learning, or study for the sake of self-enrichment, study for the sake of service to the world. Our law school was founded by women, for women, in a time when women could not get a legal education. It is a bold statement to say you can change this hurt and wounded world. And that is the tradition and mission of the people who first founded and began AU and who before that dreamed of that sort of place, of that sort of place institution of higher learning and work for it out of this congregation. That is the theological tradition that we all share in common. We share that common mission to make this world a gentler place. So thank you for so generously and graciously welcoming me here to consider for us these questions. Grace and peace to you from the one who was and is and is to come, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please join with me in prayer. Gracious God, grant that as your word was read and is now proclaimed, our hearts may be open to your spirit and our lives transformed into living testaments to your love. Of all of the passages, with all of the questions that are presented to us in scriptures, we find ourselves considering this one today. I invite your pity and prayers for the poor preacher looking for something new, or at least new enough to be interesting to say about this particular week's gospel lesson for anyone who's been in the Christian communities for any length of time. This passage sits as an explanation for the Christian love ethic. When asked how Christians ought to act out in the world, in short order, if anyone has been around the church, you are going to get this story. You're going to hear again the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor, asks the lawyer. And we get, as we often do, this story from Jesus, who always seemed to have an immediate grasp of both the presenting problem and the underlying issue who always seemed to have at hand such apt illustrations, who in a gentle and securitous way would lead a questioner from where they were to the very border of a broader, gentler, greater truth, giving them, the questioner, the opportunity for their own free will — free will we are, after all, Methodists — to step across the line into a better place, a new way of being, a fuller life, an abundant life. Or in freedom, not. Here in story form, in parable, as Jesus frequently does, Jesus seeks to awaken the moral imagination of those who are hearing these lessons. These seeming simple truths, hints, and metaphors could take us a lifetime to fully understand and appreciate. So let us hope that I have some nugget, some new wisdom, to glean from this a familiar pericope. Here I stand, buoyed up and confronted by 2,000 years of preachers, right? And guests and otherwise, and hope that I have some good answer, some new answer for this question. So who is my neighbor. As I said, this is the heart of this Christian ethical perspective. I was invited recently to uh, give a lecture at a Christian-related college on ethics. I was pretty excited about this. I was honored for the invitation and duly accepted. It's a school with a really interesting history and mission, and I was excited to be a part of that. And so I accepted, and then they sent me back the topic. I should know better. I should have asked what the topic was beforehand. And they then asked me to give this lecture on all of Christian ethics and its place in higher education, taking into account the entire wide diversity of Christian thinking. And I replied, Oh, is that it? And then they responded, We need you to do it in under 30 minutes. At that point, I stopped asking questions because I figured it would get harder quicker. So I went with that. I arrived on campus on the day of the lecture, and they asked what sort of technological support I needed. I requested only a whiteboard with markers. I find myself more engaged, more free to respond with fluidity to the context of the conversation if I'm able to write on a board and draw pictures and do those sorts of things. I also, like, you know... Always find that technology fails me in the moment I most need it to work. And so I wanted, to, you know, a trusty, reliable tool, a marker and a whiteboard. I get to the lecture hall and we begin the discussion with an ethical consideration of a tree. Or more exactly, I set up a scenario in which a removal of a tree is at the center of the conversation. And I go to write some of the content that we are working on up on the board and the marker squeaks. I'm not talking like just a little bit of squeaks. I mean, you know, cartoonishly squeak. You know, like we all watch like picture pages where the marker would sing. My marker sang as I'm trying to write things out on the board. And the whole, la- the whole room would laugh with each time I wrote because of the amount of squeaking it did, almost cartoonishly. And yet, I continue on with my writing because, you know, this is my crutch now, the place where I'm going to write, despite this incredulity of my singing markers, my chorus, my choir. And as we change topics, I go to erase the whiteboard. By the way, it's not an ordinary whiteboard. This is one of those technologically advanced whiteboards, one of those Promethean boards, for those of you who are familiar from classrooms, where you can write and it records what you've written on it, you can project onto it, it interacts with the technology in the room. This was one of those really nice, expensive whiteboards. And I I go to erase it, and the president of the college is in the room. And the provost of the college, is in the room, and the deans of the couple of schools are there, which by the way, of course, produce all this additional nervous energy and anxiety. And I, I go to erase the board, and the ink just smears across the board. It does not erase. And so there I'm sitting with this destroyed technological board trying to complete this this lecture on ethics in under 30 minutes is supposed to take into account the entire diversity of Christian thought, which I would have a hard time accomplishing. And I thought in that moment, wow, this is really going well. Now, the fundamental question I asked that group during that 30-minute lecture was simply, how should a Christian act in the scenario that I presented to them? And there was not a uniformity of opinion about what should be done about this tree that needed to be removed. They talked around it. There was you know, issues of protecting creation, um, questions about people's impacted by this tree, um, and various different things. Um, there was not sort of a common opinion what would happen. And then I asked that question that stopped everyone for a moment, because um, they had no problem offering an answer to that question of what we should do. But when I asked why, there was silence for a moment, right? And then someone said, well, it's, it's the right thing to do. And I said, so what? And there was silence. Who cares if it's the right thing to do? Hold that. For a moment. The expert in the law, the lawyer, comes in with our initiating question this morning. The lawyer really doesn't want a lesson in law. He they are an expert in the law, we are told in the Bible, and there's no reason not to believe that. They want an answer to this question What must I do to earn or inherit eternal life? Now I think there is a difference between everlasting life and eternal life. Everlasting signifies quantity. Eternal addresses the quality of life. Life whose quality is like that quality of the life of the eternal one. A life with the quality of God in it. A life filled with abundance. The scribe has chosen the better. The quality of life, not simply quantity. What must I have for eternal life? Now, every learned Jewish person of Jesus' time would have known these commandments that the lawyer quickly names. They were written on their door. They knew these. The law, they they all had memorized them as children. But the law is to prescribe. I'm assuming there's some lawyers in the audience. This is, after all, Washington, D.C., right? A few of you. The law is to prescribe and constrain potential liability, to clearly define where borders and boundaries lie and make clarity where there is vagueness, right? So the lawyer reasonably asks where these boundaries are. Who is my neighbor exactly? Tell me where that expectation to love begins and ends. There has to be some clarifying information here because this seems a little big. And Jesus, as Jesus is wont to do, doesn't answer that question, but instead tells us a story about being a neighbor, right? We have a wounded, battered person on the side of the road, and we have two examples of unneighborly behavior the priest and the Levite. Now, one only served in the temple for a short time the priest. Should the priest, on examining this person on the side of the road, discover them to be dead, they would be ritually unclean and therefore ineligible to fulfill any more of their duties in the temple. The cost. For the priest, of acting like the neighbor was too high. And as far as the Levite knew, the victim could be a decoy, we could imagine. Bandits were not above using one of their own to entice some tender-hearted traveler to move a little closer. And even if the victim wasn't a decoy, the victim was a fool. The victim brought this on their own selves. I mean, you haven't heard that recently, have you? They did it to themselves. It's their own fault. I mean, how could this person, this traveler, let themselves get into this situation? They have some culpability for what has happened to them. I mean, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 14-mile descent of 3,600 feet through a narrow, twisting, turning road surrounded by hills and blind curves. It was notorious. Everyone knew robberies happened on that road. You simply didn't go down that road by yourself. It was too dangerous. Prudent people traveled in caravans. What was this victim thinking? They did this to themselves. There was an interesting study done looking at the Good Samaritan and its impacts on hearing this story and compassionate behaviors. It took seminary students, so persons studying to go into the ministry who should be at least casually familiar with the Bible, right? We'd assume some familiarity with Jesus and and, and this story in particular, right? And they led them through the traits associated with compassion in a conversation and then uh, hosted a discussion about the Good Samaritan. They looked at it as a group um, and studied the scripture. And then the students were told they needed to be across campus to move on to the next activity. One group of students was told they had a very short time frame to make it a long distance to the other side of campus. And the other group was given a long extended leisurely time to make it to the other side of campus. And along the path between these two points, an actor was staged to feign injury in front of the participants in this study. Those who were in a hurry were over 90% unlikely to stop for a person they see injured in their path. In fact, one of the participants stepped over the stage victim to get into the building that they needed to go to for the next part. The only correlated value that the researchers could find that could might make sense of who would stop and help and who wouldn't was hurriedness. How time-constrained you felt. One could wonder how much compassion we lose when we embrace a culture of rush rather than presence. What happens if we slow down for a moment and notice one another? Returning now to scripture, we come now to our hero, the Samaritan. To the Jewish community of the first century, the Samaritans are the lowest, worst, most horrible people on earth. The feeling was sort of mutual between the Samaritans and the Jewish community. The Samaritans had a religion that sort of looked like that of the Jewish people, but not completely. One did not even need to be ethnically Samaritan to be called a Samaritan irreligious and unorthodox people in the Jewish community were frequently called Samaritans as a put-down. It was a racial slur of its time. See, Samaritans had different politics, different allegiances than good, upstanding members of the Jewish society. They thought differently. To make matters worse, our hero seems to be a traveling merchant. I mean, how can you trust or believe anyone who doesn't have a home but is constantly on the move? And we know this because the innkeeper, also not considered a trustworthy group, knew the Samaritan's credits to be good, believed that the Samaritan would come back and pay the rest of the bill, right? And was trusted by the Samaritan, to be honest. Jesus as with most parables, by using a Samaritan challenges the assumptions and expectations of the first hearers and turns the world as you want it to be upside down, as the gospel always does. You have to imagine a person right now wearing apparel, identifying themselves as standing against everything you believe politically and socially. A T-shirt, a button, or, I don't know, a red baseball hat. That would be maybe the closest approximation to a Jewish experience of a Samaritan you could find. The Samaritan is someone that in the first century, Jewish hearers' minds would have believed, they would have believed to be absolutely committed to opposing the moral opinion, and the right thing to do in that situation. The person least likely to do the right thing. And yet, Jesus gives us the Samaritan as our example. Go and do likewise. I suspect the first hearers didn't even think it was possible for a Samaritan to ever act that nobly. So we have to wonder, right? Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Going back to that lecture, we sat in silence for a bit, and then someone offered, you know, well, I mean, you know, it's the right thing to do, and you, you should always do the right thing, and I continued, and, and so what? Like, why? Who cares? Who cares if you do the right thing? And they responded, well, you know, I think as a Christian, we have to do the right thing so we can go to heaven. Is that it? We do what is right because we want a bus ticket to go to heaven. Is our relationship with the divine and each other purely transactional? Is it a spiritual economy that we're working through here? I do this, you give me that. I do right, I get to go to heaven. Is this Pascal's wager? Teacher, what must I do to eat, earn eternal life? Right? That's the setup question. And what does the law say? What does the law command? To love. Think on this for a moment. The lawyer asked a question about earning something. How do I get what I want? And Jesus responds that abundant life, a life that is like that of the divine, requires love. The lawyer asks, who are they supposed to love? And Jesus answers not by telling him that answer, but by telling them what love was or is. Jesus is answering the first question when it looks like Jesus is answering the second question. And what do we find there? What do we find out about love from what the Samaritan does? Love gives and expects nothing in return. Do you love God because you'll get something out of this deal? Do we seek to become followers of Jesus because... There's something we get, or do we do it without that expectation? Did the Samaritan expect to be repaid for their actions? There's nothing in that parable that suggests this. Jesus calls into question that first answer, right? To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Really? Really? So why are you asking me about earning something? Why are you wondering what you get? If you love God, it's not that sort of relationship. Howard Thurman, a black mystic thinker wrote, "'Behold the miracle. "'Love has no awareness of merit or demerit. "'It has no scale by which its portion "'may be weighed or measured. "'It does not seek to balance giving and receiving, Love loves. That is its nature. This does not mean that it is blind, naive, or pretentious, but rather that love holds its object securely in its grasps, calling all that it sees by its true name, but surrounding all with a wisdom born both of its passion and its understanding. Here is no traffic in sentimentality no catering either to weakness or strength. Instead, there is a robust vitality that quickens the roots of personality, creating an unfolding of the self that redefines, reshapes, and makes all things new. We hear that somewhere else in the gospel. Behold, I make all things new. What must we do to earn, discover, inherit, Abundant living, to love the unique and beautiful images of God that each of us, each of you, and every person around you has been created to be. That sounds nice and beautiful and easy, but friends, it is a hard thing. Remember, Jesus is using a Samaritan. That was not easy for people to hear. Prior to his death, John Lewis spoke at a lecture I happened to be at of the need for us to love and to love, to know and share love with one another as a means of addressing the social distrust and evil and white supremacy of our society. He called us all to rise to the full heights of this love, and a student at the lecture challenged him for giving an answer that seemed too simple, too easy. Too soft. And his response was to say that love is hard. When they come at you with nightsticks, attack dogs, and fire hoses, love is not the easy answer. To stand in the face of a person who intends to do you harm and love their personhood so as to invite them to rise to the full height of their potential humanity, that is hard and tiring work. Love, John Lewis said, is hard. Hate is the easier path. Friends, we can make this world a gentler place. We have a moral obligation to do so because we believe that. Love does not mean that we cease from fighting and naming injustice when we see it. When the rights of people with uteruses to make decisions about their own bodies is stripped from them, we have a moral obligation to fight and demand, and love demands this from all of us. Abundant life, one that reflects the eternal, is filled with this kind of love. Not emotion, but action. That is the heart of the Christian witness. That is the heart of this Christian love ethic. This is why we experience this particular parable over and over and over and over again, because it captures our imagination. It awakens in us that sense of calling. It captures the heart of the gospel, which is what? The good news for whom? The whole world. For me, for you, for everyone. whole world for creation itself it's a radical shift of perspectives in this world in which all are seen for who they are which are beautiful images of God and all ethics are no longer transactional not something for something but devotional a prayer an honoring of that image of God in ourselves you need to hear that Love each other as you love yourself. You are a unique and special image of God, as is your neighbor. Ethics are not transactional, but devotional, a prayer and honoring of the image of God in ourselves and others. And acts of devotion expect nothing in return. It's a song when we act rightly. Like the beautiful song of the choir, thank you so much. What a blessing to be here with you. Right action becomes a blessing for others. It's a commitment. It's an act of devotion, a prayer, a testimony, a witness. It's not transactional. It's not because you're going to get something out of it. It comes out of an emanation of opening oneself to love, and reflecting that love back out into the world. The Samaritan, this most horrid individual we can imagine, because the shiny example of that, who in the care for the stricken person shows us what devotional love to God looks like. So who is your, who is my neighbor, everyone is. Men.